it is a delight and honor to be here. Good morning, good afternoon to you guys. Happy Father's Day to all of our fathers. Can we thank God once again for all of the men in this room that serve as a father? You know, culture pushes fatherlessness as a norm. And, you know, sometimes we can think that it's okay. There, there are some parts of the country where, uh, particularly Philly, I mean, you're talking over 80% of the households I look at the scriptures, I think of places like Ezekiel, don't turn there, but Ezekiel 22, where God says, I searched for a man and I couldn't find one. That doesn't mean that there was no males in Israel. That means that God is making a distinction between a male and a man. So I want to celebrate every man in this room, especially those that serve in the capacity of fatherhood. We, you know, it's not just one day. We really do want to celebrate all of our fathers every single day for all that you do. Our societies are better because of you. Our communities are better because of you. Our families are stronger because of you. And our churches are stronger because of fathers. So help me thank God one more time for all of the men that serve as fathers in this room. And the the greatest way we can serve you guys today as fathers is to root our manhood in the scriptures. So if you can grab your Bibles and meet me in John chapter 3. John chapter 3 is where we're going to be. As you turn there, let me publicly express how uh, much of a good time we had yesterday at our Father's Day barbecue at the Brooklyn Park. Amen. Thank God. Can we thank God for all of our brothers that got together yesterday? (laughs) Just a quick shout out to a few people. um, A few people. Somebody got their phone on full. I'm just joking. I'm just, it's all good. It's all good. I'm just messing with you. So yesterday, you know, when we got together, there were a few people that really went the extra mile to make sure that we were getting some community and getting together. Uh, Yesterday, Lionel Sinius, he's not here this morning. I think he's working. His wife is with us. Can we thank God for Lionel? Amen. That brother, he was here at Sex Rewired. I was talking to him about 1130, maybe 1145. It was close to midnight. We were talking. And he was tired. He had to do some work when he got home and got home and probably got a few hours of sleep and literally had to get back up at 5 a.m. to go down to Brooklyn Bridge Park. Because, you know, you can't reserve a table and a grill. So he had to go down there and wait and just wait for the guys to come. And, uh, you know, that, that's a level of sacrifice that, you know, it goes unseen, unnoticed. So I, I just want to highlight him today. When you guys see him, make sure you guys, especially the brothers that had a good time yesterday, make sure we thank him for that sacrifice. Also want to shout out Devon. Raise your hand, brother. Amen. Devon uh, served us well yesterday in the capacity of just walking us through the scriptures. We did not just get together and eat burgers and, and hot dogs, but we actually got into the word of God. And Devon led our time yesterday and served us well on the topic of discipleship. Uh, so grateful for him. And, and also, I see Ed and Gabe. They work the grill, the grill masters. Let's thank God for them. Amen. It ain't nothing worse than going to a cookout and the burgers is undone and the, the chicken's still bleeding. The, these brothers made sure everything was done and done well. So, so, so we, we really are grateful for you. Uh, also, let me just publicly express how overwhelmed I still am from our Sex Rewired conversation on Friday night. Those of you who were here, amen. 
I think you can attest that it was a, it was a good night. Uh, it really was just the beginning, the intro to the conversation. It was so much more we still need to cover. There were so many more questions that the audience need to ask, and, uh, and there's so much more that we just need to say on the topic. And some people left with more questions, and you know, some people got some answers and partial, so we just need to, it's one of those topics that's so complex. It's not cookie cutter. We can't just hit it one time and be done. We literally need to talk about it over and over again. And so we will go back to make sure that we have that discussion. Volume one was Friday, but we will have volume two again soon. Uh, thank you for everybody that served from the worship team to those that were taking care of the kids, our hospitality. I really am genuinely pastorally. I'm just grateful. You guys do not have to give up your time, so thank you. All right, let's get into the word of God, John chapter three. Uh, I, I'm literally going to do the unthinkable this morning. I have not done that as we uh, have been gathering on Sunday morning. I've never done this. I'm literally going to preach one verse today. Yeah, I've never done that. Uh, but I'm excited to do it. And it's not just a verse. It is the most uh, famous, familiar passage of Scripture in terms of John 3:16. In fact, it's so famous that I, I almost asked our media team not to put it up just because the dude smoking weed that has no love for the Lord, doesn't love the church, he knows how to quote this one. And so everybody in this room probably can quote it. In fact, I, I want to prove to you that we all can quote it. Uh, let's read it together instead of me just reading it. John 3, verse number 16. If we can get it up on the screen, let's, let's jump right to it. On the count of three, let's jump in. One, two, three. For God so loved the world... I want to preach this morning or this afternoon from the topic entitled, A Perfect Father. A Perfect Father. Let us look to the Lord. Father, this morning we do sit in anticipation of you, sit in anticipation of what you will say to us. And Father, we, we do ask that you will speak to us today. Uh, Father's Day, just as Mother's Day, is a complicated day for some that have grown up without a father. Some have great fathers. Uh, some are fathers. Some wish they could be fathers. We just we come in here with a bunch of different uh, different emotions. And Lord, I just pray that we would submit them all to the word today as we look to you to see what an example of a perfect father is. Uh, one thing that every man in this room needs is more exposure to your word. So, Father, as we dig in this morning, even though it's one small verse, every single verse is inspired by you. So, Father, would you impact our hearts? May we walk out of here loving Jesus more than we did when we walked in. It's in Christ's name we pray. Let everybody say amen. amen. Uh, I, I was up early this morning, and uh, usually I have a, some type of intro that, you know, that kind of pushes me into the sermon so that we all can get on the same page of what we're talking about. But uh, this morning, I, I realized you know, as I was trying to consider some things, some ways to start, there really was no other way to start besides looking at the perfect father. Uh, I was considering looking at different biblical figures in the scriptures that were good role models, not just as fathers, but as men. So when I was looking through the scriptures, I was thinking about, you know, maybe we'll talk today about Moses. You know, Moses was a man that uh, absolutely had great leadership, he was insecure in some areas, and so he wasn't a perfect father, but he, or a perfect man, but he absolutely was a good example of godliness. I was thinking about looking at Noah. Noah is a, is a good example of, in fact, uh, Genesis chapter 6 will go so far as to say he was a man that was righteous and blameless before um, among other people. And so this man was a man that walked with the Lord. I think we can agree that Noah had obedience to the Lord. 
the Lord told him to build. He got busy and started to build. He was also a great father that protected his family because when everybody else drowned, eight were saved, which was his family. So he was a man that was obedient, a man that was faithful to the Lord, a man that had a relationship with the Lord. He also was not a perfect father. When you get to chapter nine, he had that little drinking thing that he did where he planted a, a little garden, a little vineyard and uh, drank of the wine. And the Bible says that he got drunk. And, and I'm, I'm always gracious with Noah because you spend 40 days on a boat with your family. Uh, you, you might need a little something, something, too. So let's not judge him. Let's not judge him. He, he needed it. But anyway, you know, he, he's not a he's not a perfect. He's not a perfect father. But we see obedience. We see godliness. We see a good fatherhood. But we also see there are some areas that he need to work on. We could have looked at the life of King David. This is a man the Bible says is made after God's own heart. He had some wise words that he shared with his son Solomon before he became king. David was a man that was faithful to the Lord. We also see good repentance with David. Look at Psalm 51, a broken and a contrite heart you will not despise. So we could have looked at David and pointed and said, there's a good example of a man that's running after the Lord as a father. Could have looked at his son Solomon. Solomon, yeah, he had some issues with women. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. I have no clue how you do that, how you manage that household. But anyway, he had a bunch of wives, but he also was a very wise man. And I will say, go so far as to say he had a good prayer life, too. Lord said, what do you want? He said, man, I need wisdom, Lord. So he had a prayer life. So we could have looked at the life of Solomon. We didn't just need to look in the Bible to see good examples of fatherhood. You can look around this room and see some good examples of fatherhood. You can look in the lives of some of your fathers, those of you who grew up with faithful fathers. I think about my father and you know, some of my earliest memories of my father was seeing him on his knees when I wake up in the morning praying for our family. I remember moments where the lights were out and he had a little shade, uh, a little lamp over his bedside and he would read his, but he had a small little Bible. He would read it. And I remember walking into his room and seeing that so I could point to good examples of fatherhood. But all of the men I just named, the biblical figures, including my father, including the greatest father you know, pales into comparison to a perfect father. Because although my father was good, he had his moments too. And although these men that we read about were good, they had their moments too. What we need most is the example of a perfect father. The only perfect father we see in the scriptures is God. And let me, let me assure you that God is referred to as a father over and over and over again in scripture. In the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus refers to God as his father 65 times. If you look at uh, the, the book we're in, John, it's 21 chapters, over 100 times he refers to God as his father. But, but I would go so far this afternoon to say, Jesus is not the only one that can lay claim that God is his father. If you've trusted in Jesus, if you've given your life to Jesus, if you are walking with Jesus, you too can claim that God is your father. Now, that may not blow your mind, but when you consider the creator of the universe did not have to be connected, he could have disconnected himself from you, but decided to become intimate with you through his son, Jesus Christ. Okay, let me put a little Bible here because you guys aren't believing me. Ephesians chapter one, verse five, I'll say it this way. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family, bringing us to himself. Here it is through Jesus Christ. 
John chapter 8, verse 42, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. The way we get access to a perfect father is by a perfect son. That son is named Jesus Christ. And so every one of you in this room that has trusted in Jesus, you can boldly proclaim God is our father. And do not take that lightly because we think, yeah, he's my father. He should be my father. We actually say that from a privileged position. But the reality is you don't deserve to be God's son. You do not deserve to be a daughter of the living God, but he has accepted you through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, we need to put in context this verse because most of us in this room, like you're not going to hear anything that you've never heard before. If you've been coming here, like I'm a one trick pony, you're going to hear the exact same thing today. But, but he, he, and we need to hear the same thing over and over again. But he, he, we, here's what we really need to do is put in context John 3.16. Because most of us in this room know how to quote John 3.16. But if you say, okay, what is happening in John 3.16? Most of us don't know the context. But if you look at all of chapter 3 of John, in the beginning of the chapter, we get John 3.16 as a result of Jesus having a conversation with a guy named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was known as a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee, which means he knew the law, which means he knew God's word. He studied God's word. He was able to quote God's word. He was able to recite God's word. He was able to memorize God's word, but which is interesting because even though he knew the intricate parts of God's word, without knowing Jesus, it's in vain. Don't miss this. He knows the law, but he still needs Jesus because he needs Jesus, which is the fulfillment of the law. Don't get it twisted. You read, you read the Bible and don't get to Jesus. It's just an academic exercise. But when you get to Jesus, that is the fulfillment. That brings transformation. Some of you in here know how to quote scripture. Some of you in here know how to read scripture. Let me promise you, before I knew Jesus, I, I loved the word of God. I have no clue why. It was something about the stories. It was something about the, how, how it was packaged and how it was brought together. It was something about the word that always excited me. But it did not make sense until Jesus took his rightful place, which is the fulfillment of all scripture. He fulfills it all. Do not think he just stepped on the scene in Matthew and Mark and Luke. No, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 is all about Jesus. So in other words, the old, old Testament pointed to Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see Jesus. The rest of the New Testament points back to Jesus. He's the climax of the book. And so he's talking to a religious leader, and he's sharing with him. Really what he's sharing is the gospel. Nicodemus comes to him and says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God because no one else can do these miracles and these signs unless God is with him. Jesus ignores that he says that and says, okay, here's what you need. Unless you be born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is confused. What do you mean by that? Do I need to go back? This is what he says. Do I need to go back into my mother's womb and be born a second time? Jesus said, you're still confused. Here's what you need. You need to be born not of flesh again. You need to be born of the spirit. Because he says that which is born of flesh is flesh. But that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And then he goes on to explain because he's still confused. He goes on to get crystal clear with the gospel. And because this is why I love Jesus. He contextualizes the moment because he knows that he's talking to a religious leader that knew the law, that knew the word of God. He takes him to the word of God because what he does in, in verse 
uh, 14 is he quotes Numbers 21. And when he quotes Numbers 21, he shows how Numbers 21 talks about Jesus. And Numbers 21 is this story where uh, all of Israel is getting bit by these snakes and Moses raises up a pole that has a golden snake on it. And here's, here's the point of that passage. Everybody that looks at that snake that is being raised up will be saved from the wrath of God. Jesus steps in and says, oh, I know you I know you memorized Numbers 21. I know you studied Numbers 21. Oh, but you forgot Numbers 21 talks about me because those that look at me raised up on the cross will be saved. You're saved from what? From the wrath of God. And so he begins to share the gospel. And finally, after he quotes Numbers 21, finally, he gets to our passage. And in our passage, he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but they will have eternal life. Here's what I want to do. I really want to walk, not line by line, I want to walk almost word by word today through uh, verse number 16. Act like you've never heard it. Act like this verse is foreign to you, because what we do is we approach familiar passages like I know that. But consider that you've never heard it before. And so we can see exactly what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, which he is saying to you today. Here's what we won't even get far before we need to stop. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. We, there's a person that's mentioned in the first two words that we got to get to for God. Sometimes I foolishly preach and I assume that everybody in the room understands who God is. It is, a, it is a very naive position to think that everybody has a working knowledge of God. Some do not know. Even when you say you need to trust God, they're like, who, well, who is God? So here's what I want to do this morning. Quickly, I want to define and I want to answer the question, who is God? And in answering the question, I can't go through all of the attributes of God, but there's a few main attributes that you need to understand if you're going to understand who God is. Number one, God is holy. I know y'all are like, I heard that last week. I heard it the week before and the week before. We just went through Habakkuk. I heard about the holiness of God. God is holy. In other words, he's not your homeboy. God is separate. And we should approach him as holy and as, as the son that you can't even get close to. He's created that son. This is a God that is absolutely holy, which means he's sinless. God doesn't have any sin. He's the standard of truth. He's the standard of, he's the goal in which we should be striving after. He is holy. And if you really, really want to understand the holiness of God, look at how angels interact with God and how humans interact with God. Stay with me. Whenever you see an angel come into the presence of a human in the scriptures, the human always drops in fear. To where the angel has to say, do not fear. But when an angel gets in the presence of God, Isaiah chapter 6, they drop in fear of the holiness of God. As big and scary as angels are for you and I, angels get in the presence of God. The Bible says that they have six wings and they fly around with two of the wings. The other two, they cover their face because you cannot look at the holiness of God and live. And the other two, they cover their feet because feet were considered unclean and nothing unclean can be in God's presence. And the other two, they just fly around and all they say is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. The essential attribute of God is that he's holy. Now, that's a problem for you. That's a problem for me. And the reason that's a problem is because you're not holy. 
I just said nothing unholy can be in his presence. Now, here's the other attribute. He's also just, which means in his holy justice, he must punish sin. The entire book of Habakkuk was God saying, I cannot let that sin slide. So consider what you came in here with this morning. That before a holy God will crush you. Now, if we stop right there, we're all condemned. But what I love about this verse, John 3, 16, what I love about it, even though you have a T-shirt with it on it, you got a coffee cup with, with it on it. Do you understand that one of the main attributes is mentioned in this verse? Here it is. For God, here it is, so loved. God is not just a God of wrath. He is not just a God of justice. He is not just a God that is holy and separate. He is a God that loves. Now, this is important for some of you because some of you grew up without a father. Or worse, you grew up with a father that was abusive. And so we approach God with the same feelings that we have of, of our natural father. And we think that God the father is like that. He can't love me. Some of you feel unloved by God because you know you. You know how unfaithful you've been to God. But the Bible shows us this morning that God is a God of love. I performed a wedding on Thursday and Wendell and Lanisha got married. Amen. Can we praise God for that? I love marriage. Wendell and Lanisha get married, and, and, and part of the, the ceremony, I, as I was conducting, I was reading uh, for First John chapter 4. First John chapter 4, it, I mean, it's all about the love of God. I want to read a small portion. It says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In his love, in the love of God, it was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might through him live. In this love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. Don't miss that. It says not that you have loved God, but he loved you. So in other words, the love of God is not predicated on the fact that you love him first, because that's us. We only love people that love us. We only love you because you make me feel good. But God loved you despite the fact that you brought no love back to the table for him. But it says God so loved and, and, you know, as a father, I love my boys, but my love for my boys pales in comparison to the love that God has for them. Why? Because I've never died for them. But Jesus, God sends his son in order to die for us. So the love of God is present. The love of God is front and center of this verse. And fathers, this is, this is a great encouragement and a model for us. The reason this is a model for us is because Consider the fact that God decided to love people that were unlovable. And as a father, that is our calling. If God was able to love his enemies, you should love your wife. Let me, let me go deeper. If God is able to love his enemies, you should love your kids. So there should be no such thing as a Christian absentee father. There's no such thing as a Christian father that does not pay his child support. There should not be a such thing as a Christian father that does not pick his kids up on the weekends and spend time with his kids. That is a oxymoron because our father, if we've trusted in the work of Jesus Christ, our father is love. Now, the strength of the love can be seen in who God decides to love. Look at the text. For God so loved, here it is, the world. He did not decide to love people that loved him back, but he loved a dark. He loved a world that was sinful, 
that was lost, that was not looking for him. I mean, there are only two chapters in all of the scriptures. There are only two chapters that show man, man actually in right relationship with God. And that's Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. The rest of the Bible shows man in rebellion to God. The rest of the, I mean, Genesis 3, you get the fall. That's uh, Adam and Eve. They sin. They disconnect from God. And then you don't even get far to see how wicked we are. Genesis 4, we get to see a, the first murder. Then Genesis 6, the Bible says his, man's intention was set on evil continuously. We, that's all you thought about was evil. And then you get to Genesis 11, and men are united in evil, trying to build a tower unto God. And you can keep going and keep going and keep going. And all you see over and over again is the world is in rebellion. I was watching CNN last night, and there was a special on CNN about uh, the, the leader of North Korea, Kim Jong-un. And he's been in the news a lot. If you follow this stuff, if you don't, uh, it's cool. But when I was watching CNN and I was watching how brutal this regime was, not just Kim Jong-un, but even his father, like this legacy of, of just br brutality, they would literally kill people for not clapping when they walked in the room. Family members. Like, this is crazy when you consider it. That's how wicked the world is. And some of you have got to turn on CNN. When next time you're in a, at the grocery store aisle and you're about to pay for your stuff, just pick up any magazine. And what you'll see is the wickedness of man. What you'll see is how, how far our hearts are from the Lord. But this is what I love about the text. For God so loved the world. Even when we were messed up, even when we were trifling, the Bible shows us that God decided that he was going to love us. And some of you in this room struggle loving friends. Can you imagine loving an enemy? But that is exactly what God does. God loves, when we were disobedient, God lavishes his love on us. And so his capacity to love you goes farther than your capacity to commit sin. Don't miss that. You, in the midst of your sin, his love is always greater. How, how do I know that? Because where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. That's God's love. Because here's what he should have did. He should have killed you the first time you sinned. The first time. Which means this room would be empty, including me. Nobody would be in this room if he killed us the moment we sinned. But we have a father, the Bible says he loves. Now his love moves him to action. His love doesn't just stop at the I love you's. His love actually moves to a tangible reality. How do I know that? For God so loved the world. Here it is that he gave. His love caused him to give. And you can always tell the depths of one's love by what they are willing to give. Do not consider, and ladies, listen to me. For you ladies, this should, be, this should be a good reminder to you. Because if you are in relationship with that dude and he never gives anything, I'm talking gives you attention. If you look at your text message and you're the first one that always sparks the conversation, you should scratch your head. Because love always gives, always gives. And so what God does is he gives. If you want to know what is your God, look at your bank account. Just look at your bank account. What you give your time, what you give your, and I'm not saying this to boost offering in here, but what you give your time and your money to is your God. That is what you are worshiping. And some of us spend so much money on putting clothes on our back and paying our bills, but where's your trust? Are you giving to the kingdom? Are you giving to the things of God? And the reason I'm saying this is because we can always trace where your priorities are.
based on what you give. We see God's priority. God decided that he was going to give. And when he decided that he was going to give, he didn't just give anything. That's what we do. We give the leftovers. I pay all my bills and then I give God. You know, I, I use all my gifts in the world and then I give God a little bit of my gifts. But when we look at the text, God decided to give. He gave to people that were unworthy of his love and he gave it all. He gave heaven's best. I was on a flight from LaGuardia to L.A. And, I, you know, those magazines that sit right in front, I grabbed, out, I grabbed one of the magazines and I started to read it because it was a long flight. And, and as I'm reading through the magazine, there was an article on uh, the, most t- the top 10 most charitable givers. I'm looking at this article and I'm, I'm so interested in it to see what men are doing with their money, what people are doing with their money. Of course, Oprah was on that list. But one of the people that struck me the most was Bill Gates. I mean, net worth $93 billion, not million, billion dollars. He gave, that year that I read it, he gave $28 billion away, 28. Now, the article went so detailed that it told us the charities that he decided to give through give to. And I'm reading through the charities and I'm specifically looking for one charity. You guys know who Bill Gates is, right? He's the founder of Microsoft. I was trying to see if he ever gave to one of his competitors. I wanted to see if he gave to Apple. You do not see Apple on the list. Why don't you see Apple on the list? It's because we don't give to people that are in competition or are enemies. We give to people that we love. God is opposite. God decided to give to people that did not love him. He decided to give to you. Here's Romans 5. While you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. So the the gift of God giving is he gives despite the fact that you don't give anything back to him. Despite the fact that you can't bring anything and say, Lord, I know you're giving me that, but here's a trade. You, You can have this. We didn't have anything to give God. And yet he decided that he was going to give, not just give, but give sacrificially. Who does he give? Look at the text. For God so loved the world that he gave, here's who he gave, his only son. He did not give, like, he didn't give Jesus because he didn't like Jesus. You know we do that. We'll give people what we don't want. We'll do a yard sale. Jesus, God isn't doing a yard sale here. God is giving heaven's best. In fact, he goes so far as to say, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. The one who he's pleased with, he gave for you. He decided in the midst, which is crazy because he gave, he gave heaven's best for humanity's worst, us in this room. He decided to give God for you, which shows us that God is sacrificial in how he gives. God emptied out Lord Yahshua, Jesus Christ, for you. Can you consider like, I don't know if you have kids in here, but if you do, consider this with me. Imagine the person that you don't like. Don't be spiritual right now. Don't act like you like everybody. Imagine that person that annoys you, that you just don't, you don't like them. It's something about them. You just they come, you go the other way. You just don't like them. That person, imagine that they commit a crime and they're sentenced to, to a death penalty. They're on death row. Now consider giving your child as a sacrifice so that to get that person that you don't like off of death row. That is exactly what God did. In the midst of you being on death row, he emptied out heaven to give Jesus Christ for you. I, I know the Holy Spirit was like, when this plan was, was brought forth, I know the Holy Spirit was like, thank God you ain't sending me 
Like, I'm the comforter. I couldn't do the stomach of the whole cross thing. Jesus, you go. I, I'm going to stay up here. I'm going to come after you go. That's what I'm going to do. Like, that's, what Jesus, that's what the Holy Spirit decided to do. But God gave heaven's best. I, I say this all the time, but he could have given the archangel Michael. He could have given Gabriel, but he doesn't. He says, that's my son. Not ten sons. That's my one son. Send him to die for people that do not love him back. And the question you should be asking right now is, when did he give him? Because we're talking in John chapter 3 at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and Jesus is able to say to Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave. When did he give him? Here's when he gave him. Revelation chapter 13 says, before the foundations of the world, the lamb was slain. Before you were, this is so dope to me because it shows me Jesus isn't plan B. He's the plan. He's the goal. So in other words, before you committed the sin, Jesus already died for it. Okay, let me go a step further. Before you were born to commit the sin, Jesus already died for it. The sin that you haven't committed 10 years from now, Jesus already died for it. So it shows us that he gave, he gave, he gave. What did he give? He gave his only son. Now, there's this thought of universalism where everybody gets saved. It's like Oprah. You get a car, you get a car, you get a every. That's not salvation. There's a requirement. I'm not going to make this up. The text shows us the requirement. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Here it is. Whoever believes the requirement to be in relationship with the perfect father that we are talking about is belief in Jesus. And I'm not talking belief as in a profession, because what we do is we say, I believe in Jesus and we go out and live any way we want to. I'm talking the fruit of your profession. How do your how does your life line up with what you are professing? If you are professing faith in Jesus Christ, your values must change. Your relationships might need to change. Some of you are walking with Jesus, but you're surrounded by people that are not walking with Jesus. And I'm not saying that you need to disconnect from all. I think you need people that do not know Jesus in your life as a witness so that you can share the gospel. So do not disconnect. That's not what I'm saying. But some of you are on track to get married to people that don't even love Jesus. How, Sway? How does that happen? Like, I don't understand it. You have this person has no love for the God that you've given your life to and you expect things to work out. How can two walk together unless they agree? So what the text is showing us is that in order to be in this relationship, you do not just blink your eyes and you're automatically in this relationship with the perfect father. It is through belief in the work of Jesus Christ, not just belief in man. He died for my sins. What does that mean? Belief in the fact that he died, not just for your sins, but he died in your place. It's called substitutionary atonement, meaning the one that should be on the cross. Jesus steps on the cross on behalf of you because you should be. You don't deserve to be in relationship. Jesus died so that you can be in relationship. So in order to be in this relationship, the Bible says, God so loved the world. He gave his only son. Whoever believes in him. What happens when you believe in him? We have eternal life. This this eternal life shows us that once God shows you that he loves you through the cross of Jesus Christ, which, by the way, like there is no greater display of the love of God than the cross of Christ. Like you, you think that you working will earn you more love from God. God loves you as much as he's ever going to love you in the cross. That's the greatest display. 
So if you think, I'm going to do this for Jesus, I'm going to do this for Jesus to earn his love, you knew, no, you do it because you've already been loved, not to earn his love. So the Bible says, if you believe in Jesus, that you'll have eternal life. Eternal life means once he loves you, he doesn't stop loving you. Do, do you understand that? If you could lose God's love, it's not eternal life, it's temporal. If you could lose the love of God, it's a temporary love. But the Bible shows us that once God lavishes love on you, he never takes it back. Which means in the midst of those moments, because you'll walk out of here, this doesn't mean that everybody will walk out sinless. Once you walk out of here, you'll commit a sin, but God doesn't look at you and say, I'm done with them. Did you see what she did? I'm done with her. God doesn't do that. Eternal life means it's eternal. And all of us will spend eternity somewhere. Like, where will you spend eternity? Like, consider that. I th- we don't think about eternity. We're so temporary and instant gratification. Where will you spend the rest of your life after you're gone from this earth? Because you will spend it somewhere. But the Bible says that those that believe in Jesus have eternal life. Showing us in contradiction is eternal death, the wrath of God. Forever separated. And that's the worst part of the wrath of God. It's not the gnashing of teeth. It's not the unquenchable fire. The worst part of the wrath of God is you are separated from God. That's the worst part of the wrath of God. And you don't think it's the worst part. But you'll notice that it will be the worst part of the wrath of God, that you are eternally separated from God. The Bible says if we believe in Jesus, we have eternal life. Many of you in here, like I don't want you to miss the fact that he's talking to the religious elite. He's talking to the one that dots all the I's, tries to dot all the, I, uh, dot all the I's and cross all the T's. Which he's talking to Nicodemus. And when he talks, in the, he does not say, For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him should obey the law. He doesn't say that. He shows us that the only way to be accepted is not to earn it. The only way to be accepted is by believing in Jesus. Some of you in this room, that's where you are. You're still trying to earn your salvation. Some of you, there's another group in here that heard everything and you'll walk out and say, that's a cute message. But I'm not giving my life to it. How do I know that? Because if you read verse 19, I'm not going to preach it, but verse 19 says, and this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, but people love darkness rather than light. So there are some people that will hear the gospel. Some of you will hear the gospel, walk out and say, that's nice, but I'm not doing that. But then there's others of you who have trusted in Jesus. You've given your life to Jesus, but your life doesn't reflect it. Your life doesn't reflect the sacrifices that you need to make and to be obedient to this God. Every head bowed and every eye closed. My greatest fear is that some of you know Jesus like I know a celebrity. Facts about him. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I I met uh, the 44th president, Barack Obama. I, I met him in 2007, right before he got elected. Went to a campaign rally and got to shake his hand, even got the opportunity to say, I'm praying for you. My wife got the opportunity to ask him a question publicly. He rubbed my, I got a picture, he rubbed my youngest son's head. He gave my oldest son a high five. And I can spout out facts about him. I can tell you they graduated from Harvard. I can tell you that he's married to Michelle. I can tell you that he has two daughters. I, can, I mean, there's facts. I can go on and on about facts about him. 
But if I ran into Barack Obama in the street right now, he would be like, who are you? Because he doesn't know me. My fear is that you know Jesus like I know the 44th president. Facts. But you don't know him. Some of you today genuinely need to give your life to the Lord. You've been running and you know the Lord is after you. But I love that his grace is irresistible. You can run for now, but he's going to grab you up. Because what's his is his. I want to pray for everybody in this room because all of us in here have moments that we've rejected him. All of us in here have moments where we love darkness more than light. Father, I want to pray for everybody in this room from the worship team to those that are serving to those that are sitting down to the children and the babies in the room. Father, I pray we are an offense to your holiness. By nature, we are children of wrath. Father, what we need most is Jesus. Every father in here we need to be exposed to more of Jesus. I love the song that was saying, we need more of you. Some of us are too satisfied with what we got. But your word, your love goes deep. May we go deep as it goes. May you help us to spiritually mature. Those that do know you, but we've been wrestling and running and wrestling with sin. Unconfessed, unrepented sin been coming here and masking it because we know how to do church. Help us, God, not to play with this thing, but help us to genuinely give our life to you and walk in obedience to you. Father, I do pray for that person that doesn't know you. Lord, they need you, Jesus. They don't know, they, but they need you. We all had to get to that place where we were faced with our need for you. So, Father, would you reveal your son, Jesus Christ,